to say you're not allowed to say anything anymore anymore. I'll explain that. The statement, you're not allowed to say anything anymore, has become, and often with justification, understood as the tired complaint of people who actually can and do say anything. But they often preface or follow their saying of a thing with the statement that they'll probably get in trouble for saying it. They don't think they'll get in trouble at all, but posturing as a subversive and daring truth-teller while uttering some worn-out examples of racism, sexism or homophobia lends their discourse some edge of bravery and originality. So when people say, you're not allowed to say anything anymore, they're met quite rightly with scepticism and suspicion. If you say, you're not allowed to say anything anymore, you will very often be considered to be in dire need of a privilege check. You'll be assumed to be actually speaking your bad brains at full volume and only bemoaning the fact that you can't say things that no decent person would wish to say anyway. So saying you can't say anything anymore is a bad manoeuvre. Don't say it. And whose who's words are those this week, Joe? And they actually are my words. They genuinely are really my words. For the season finale, I've gone all out and written my own words, and that is true. Huh, it is true. It is true, yeah. And they actually are your words. They are my words, wow. yeah, all of them. So it follows that if you can say anything, you can satirise anything, and anyone can satirise anything. So the satirist is unbound and untrammeled, able to turn his or her surgeon's knife or medicine or whip or mirror, depending on your favourite 18th century metaphor, 18th century, which is, of course, the best 18th century. I'm an 18th centuryist. The 18th century is the best 18th century. It's the best century because it's yeah. the 18th century. <laughs> okay. There's no subject, I was saying, which cannot be satirised and no truth which is unsayable, except for those things which nobody would want to say anyway because they're objectionably abhorrent things. So that's all good. Yeah, and yet, and yet, there are some things you're not allowed to say, aren't there? You're not allowed to say that. Um, you'll be <laughs> shut down and banned from Twitter if you comment that. Stop it, Joe. Stop it. You stop saying those things. Not allowed to say Theresa May. Uh, bad. Joe, what are you doing? Stop. It's true. If you say thing now, they'll arrest you, arrest you, and put you in jail. And Joe, I mean it. You're marking your card so badly right now. Yeah. I'm going to leave it to your imagination, listeners, to imagine what a podcaster might have been saying that should have been beeped. To clarify, I wasn't saying anything. It's just part of the conceit that we're opening with. That's what's happening. But I bet you can imagine something. And further, I would like to take issue with what you said before, Adam. You said that the satirist can turn his or her surgeon's knife or mirror or whatever anywhere he or she so chooses. And that's the problem because actually all the satirists, all those imaginary knife-wielding, mirror-holding people who were imagined in the second best century in history, they were all men, weren't they? And all the writers in question who were hypothesising them, Pope and Swift and Dryden, they were men too. And I'm not sure that the 21st century assumption of parity that's implied in your pronouns there is quite legitimate. And to use someone else's words now to introduce today's discussion of satire, speech, women and the future of satire, here's Viv Kroskop, writing in the Financial Times in May 2018. She said, So what is the role of satire in a divided society? And in this politically correct age of hashtag me too and time's up, what part are women to play in that? The response to Wolf, that's Michelle Wolf, who did a controversial comedy set at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, demonstrated something important about what satirists are allowed to say and what women are allowed to say. In both cases, it can be summed up as this. Ideally, we don't want you to say that. I suspect that is a definition of satire doing its job. It also reveals that when a woman says certain things, it's monumentally subversive. That is also good 
for satire. Right, so what she's talking about there, or what she's started, her starting point here is that when Michelle Wolf um, did this controversial comedy set that was really quite edgy um, and quite near the knuckle, the condemnation of her for the jokes that she made was disproportionate. And that's because she's a woman. Mm. So, why is it more subversive for a woman to say certain things than for a man? Yeah, I don't know. And we'll talk about that in the podcast, won't we? Why, we will, is it, we will. why is it more controversial for a woman to say things than a man? I'll just repeat the question. Yeah. Well, and, for, and Grosskopf suggests that's a good thing, that if it's more subversive, then mm. so much the better, because satire is meant to subvert. Mm. But it's not going to do any subversion if it's just shut down, is it? No, it's not. So, what what is what is this? If people have just tuned in, what are they listening to, Joe? <laughs> this is this is the final podcast in series one of Smith and Moore talk about satire. The podcast in which I, Joe War, and my colleague Adam Smith talk about satire. We're mercilessly rehashing, cannibalising, and repurposing material from our ongoing project, Satire, Births, Deaths, and Legacies, in a desperate bid to amass quantifiable impact for our research. As you should probably know by now, where have you been? I am Adam Smith. I'm a lecturer in 18th century literature, and Joe Joe War is a lecturer in 19th century literature. And today, to round off our podcast, we're going to be thinking about who can say what and who can satirise what and how the question of being a man or a woman might come into that. Yes, because there's been some interesting dynamics emerging on this podcast in relation to those questions. Almost all of the 18th century definitions of satire come from men. All of the satirists those men imagine are men. Many of the contemporary examples of satire that we've mentioned, I think Stuart Lee might have come up once or twice and also less good people like Frankie Boyle, they're all men. And yet, we realised a few episodes in that all our invited guests were women. We didn't set out only to interview female scholars of satire, but that's how it was working out, and we decided to stick with it. And that wasn't difficult, because such a lot of the amazing work being done on satire at the moment is being done by women. And we hope that, to some extent at least, this has balanced out the fact that satire often has been, and in many ways, arguably, still is, very much a man's game. And we're continuing that today, when later in the show we'll be interviewing Professor Karen Harvey from the University of Birmingham. Karen is actually um, head of the Birmingham Centre for 18th Century Studies, um, and she's produced a great deal of work on, well, gender in the 18th century. So her first book, Reading Sex, examined ideas of gender difference in 18th century erotic culture. Uh, Her second book, The Little Republic, was all about reconstructing men's experiences of the house. And she's involved in lots of projects now, um, one of the most recent being a collaboration with archaeologists called The Material Body. But yeah, to start with, we thought we'd have a little conversation about what exactly exactly the deal is with men, women and satire. Yes, what, oh what, is that deal? I suppose one obviously inadequate way to explain this, which is often, um, often mobilised to account for things having historically been unfair, is, would be to argue that, well, men in history have tended to do all of the stuff, haven't they? They've done... They've, they've been the ones who've done the doing, so they've been commentators, so they've also been satirists, um, and that's how it was in the history, and it will probably get better, and it's already got a lot better. Um, but I think we want to probably dismiss that immediately, that that's, it's not as simple as just saying they did everything, including the satire. No, absolutely. Um, and there's actually something I've brought to show you, Joe, uh, from the early 18th century. Um, do you want to just describe that, the front cover of that book, to the audience at home? Poems by eminent ladies, particularly Mrs. Barber, Mrs. Ben, Mrs. Carter, Lady Chudley, and various other names. Um, so it's volume one of a, an anthology of poems by eminent ladies um, with the epigraph, 
We allowed you beauty and we did submit to all the tyrannies of it. Our cruel sex, will you dispose us to in wit? Um, so it's a really patronising little epigraph <laughs> to open with, isn't it? We uh, hope hope you pretty ladies aren't too too mean to us and it's not fair for you to be witty as well as beautiful. Um, so yeah, this this sounds bad. It's not bad. It is, it is bad. But I mean, if you look, if you type in eminent ladies into historical texts online there are right. there are anthologies of eminent ladies they always have epitaphs like that and um they have they have things like the preface this one says these volumes are perhaps the most solid compliment that can possibly be paid to the fair sex they are a standing proof that great abilities are not confined to the men and that genius often glows with equal warmth and perhaps with more delicacy in the breast of the female well, that's nice isn't yeah it? yeah um so i mean it's not it's, it's not, not great, nice it's really sarcastic well it's not it's not it's not it's, it's, not, it's not ideal, is it? It's not yeah. ideal. Um, and also, it's not particularly amazing to say, if you look really carefully at all the anthologies of... All the um, archives of 18th century material, there's one or two anthologies of women's work. But, I mean... There was some. There was there was some. Um, and there are names here, like Afra Ben, for instance, mm. you know, very, very well known in her own time. So there were, there were successful women writers. I mean, later in the 18th century, Anne Radcliffe mm-hmm. is often singled out as someone who lived by exclusively by the pen and was one of the most successful authors of the 18th century yeah they're so, not satirists you know, though are they they're not satirists but they're but what what i mean is women are not invisible no. as is often suggested no because it's often suggested isn't it that back in the day everyone was really sexist and then we sort of got modern and we sorted it out and now it's all fine well, a very very successful woman satirist from the early 18th century who we've talked about in the podcast before was lady mary montague yeah um, and I think she's a particularly interesting case study following on from the preface there that, that suggested that women are geniuses and also delicate because mm. um, she could be quite scatological. Yeah. Um, and she's, and we'll, well, I'll trouble this in a second, but she's best remembered for taking on Jonathan Swift and a lot of his poems like The Lady's Dressing Room, for instance, or A Beautiful Young Nymph Goes to Bed. We're about talking about the falsity of women mm. and how... Uh, women present a certain image uh, but actually it's not true and they're disgusting on the inside yeah. in, the, in the ladies dressing room a character um, follow, goes into a beautiful woman's dressing room and finds out that she's very artificial and even even shits yeah. he finds her toilet and yeah. it's got a poo in it and he runs out of the room saying Celia, Celia, Celia shits and that's his punishment for being a voyeur is discovering that women are actually well yeah. human um, we started this podcast with George III <coughs> pooing in a field and we yeah. ended it with a woman doing a poo in a chamber pot. That's right. I'm sure, there's uh, something to be said about that, isn't there? There is, and you know, there's a there's a lot of writing about Swift's misogyny, and some some attempts to justify it as part of a, its broader misanthropic project. But Lady Mary Montague wasn't having any of it, and she wrote a poem, uh, which offered, which she claimed was going to offer the the proper explanation for why Doctor Swift, and it was explicitly him, mm-hmm. came to write this poem. Now. There's, I know there's a bad tendency in literary podcasts to read loads of things out for ages, but um, I would just like to read out this bit of poem because I love it. So, so she's imagining that Jonathan Swift has gone to see a prostitute, and then this happens. The reverend lover with surprise peers in her boobies and her eyes and kisses both, and tries and tries. The evening in this hellish play beside his guineas thrown away provoked the priest to that degree he swore the fault is not in me. Your damned close stool so near my nose, your dirty smock and stinking toes would make a Hercules as tame as any bow that you can name. I'll be revenged you saucy queen, replies the disappointed dean. I'll so describe your dressing room the very Irish will not come, she answered short. I'm glad you're right. You'll furnish paper when I shite. 
So he's justifying his. Uh, he's trying to justify his own. Mm. Um, what do you call impotence. it? Impotence there. Uh, by suggesting it's because she's disgusting and he's going to slur her name. And when he says the very Irish will not come, that works on two levels because he is also it, yeah. Irish um, as well. So, I mean, that's not particularly delicate, is, is that it? the that's two quite... levels you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I mean, right. they won't come as in, you know, you might yeah. expect the Irish to do anything yeah. like that, but also they won't come because <laughs> uh, he's yeah. impotent. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um... Okay, so this is Adam and Joe in the recording studio a few weeks later, just editing this podcast. And I just want to clarify that those assumptions about the Irish stated there are the assumptions made by the poem in an 18th century context and are consistent with the assumptions made by 18th century readers at the time. So that's what that was. So yeah, so so you so you've got that. Not delicate, is it? It's not delicate. No, it's not it? delicate. It's no, given as good as she gets. Yeah, Very and, she, and, and yet she was one of the eminent ladies. <clears throat> In that, in, in that edition, she's wasn't still it? Yeah, lady. she is. With the um, delicate, delicate satirical breast. Yeah, yeah, but where where did she go? Where did, well, she was censored out of the canon for a long time by Swift, by Pope in the Dunciad, and they they talked a lot about her. Uh, sort of to be a successful woman was had all sorts of moral implications, and um, and she was written out of the canon until recently. So there's there's a woman there that was silenced by literary history really mm. for for a, a long time. Um, Back in the Norton now, though, but she's isn't back she? in back in the Norton anthology now. Although, as a in the section on Jonathan Swift, yeah. So you've got Jonathan Swift. You've got in a in a section of the anthology that's about about querying the idea of gender in the 18th century. You've got Swiss ladies' dressing room, and then you've got um, her response as well. Yeah. Uh, elsewhere in the book, there's Mary Leoper, who is also in our Eminent Ladies anthology we were looking at. Um, she wrote a response to uh, Alexander Pope's essay on man with essay on woman. She's in the anthology but it's positioned as a response to Pope. So these women are present, but they're understood entirely through their relationships to more better-known, successful men satirists. Yeah. So how is that progress? Yeah, well, it's not progress, really, is it? No. No. Uh, And I suppose, I mean, that applies whether the extracts that we're looking at are specifically satirical or whether um, just literary just how uh, women writers and their works have been considered and evaluated but with satire there's also the kind of parallel issue parallel intersecting issue that quite often men are just considered to be funnier aren't they or funniness is appreciated more in men yeah, I mean, I'm regularly horrified by stories in the news about student evaluations uh, where mm. they, they look at what students say about different lecturers and then and then get loads of statistics and put them into graphs. And overwhelmingly, and it's not it's been the case for at least 10 years, which is when I first started to see these graphs appear, uh, mm. male lecturers are described as clever, funny, entertaining. Yeah. Um, but often there is an emphasis on humour, on the lecturer's use of humour, whereas women are much... It's much rare for a woman to be described as funny, and if she is, she's silly. Mm. Um, women are expected to be kind, lovely, supportive, nice, oftentimes have good dress sense, yeah. this sorts of thing. Um, so certainly in that context, the evidence... in the, that, that corpus evidence suggests that students are reluctant to acknowledge that women might be funny. You are a, you are a woman and a lecturer. Do people That's think? Right, yeah. Do students think you're funny, or does that ever come from your feedback? Because you are. I've never had feedback saying I was funny ever. That mm. maybe they just don't get my humour. Maybe, maybe. And I suppose that the sense that there's a difference between female comedy and male comedy 
or that they might like different things or appeal to different markets is quite interestingly exemplified in the fact that there's very few male female comedy duos are there do you think if they a, a man, man and female comedy duo a man, ma- and, a <laughs> a man and a woman a man females out of do you think if you had a man and a woman in a comedy duo the man would be allowed to say more subversive things than the women can men just get away with saying stuff all the time is that true i think it might be a bit true they certainly thought it was true in the 18th century, which means it must be time for our 18th century moment of the episode. Yeah, although we have talked about the 18th century quite a lot already, but let's have let's it's have it's time one anyway, for the we? 18th century okay. moment of the episode. I know. What did people think in the 18th century, and why? So Esther Lewis, um, she wrote in a poem called *Mirror to Detractors* in 1789. Why is it thought in us a crime to utter common sense in rhyme? Um, and the poem as a whole is, is about the, the, the different standards. What did people think in the 18th century? And why? The 18th century segment there, that was that was quite something, wasn't it? You sound underwhelmed, Joe. What was the matter with the 18th century segment of this episode? I think it was underwhelming, wasn't it? Well, I think it was necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. It would follow, then, that men can get away with satirising things and satirising them in ways that women can't. In terms of thinking about sex and gender mm. and its relationship to satire, yeah, I don't know that much about it. Do you? No. Should we give? I think we should uh, give Karen Harvey. We should a give ring. Karen Harvey yeah. a ring. Professor Karen Harvey at the University yeah, of Birmingham that's, uh, that's on line one. Let's do it. Okay. Hello, Karen. We've just been talking about satire. Um, why are so many satirists men? Why are female voices often shut down in satire? Do you think that's an 18th century thing or the legacy of the 18th century? Or is it still the case today? The way that I view satire is, or at least I think the way that satire is often represented is as a kind of clever sort of humour. You know, it's very layered. So, you know, you're using techniques to create a certain impact, maybe make people laugh. But at the same time, you're also doing something else. And that's, you know, passing comment on something that that could be quite serious, you know, something about politics or ethics. So it's often seen as as kind of quite clever, I think, and layered and witty and very informed. And I think because of that, and because of the limitations that I think women have been historically perceived to have, around things that are very clever and things that are political and informed. I think satire is very often constructed or portrayed as as masculine. I think there's also something else, and that's that satire is often seen as not very very nice. You know, it's often a bit, it's got a cruel edge. It it involves ridicule. It's often quite biting. And I think, you know, in, in many times, many places, you know, that flies in the face of expectations of femininity you know where where women are supposed to be a bit modest and kind and and nice and friendly and pleasant so I think all of that's you see that very very clearly in the 18th century but I think you know that that still lives on although we've moved on a bit thankfully. So to be good at satire you have to not be very nice you have to be perceived as being funny you have to be well informed and generally women aren't those things or aren't perceived as being those things. I think it's really easy to make sweeping generalisations about any culture. But of course, you know, any culture is made up actually of lots of different cultures and lots of different discourses. And I think, you know, we see lots of women today 
um, in the early 20th, 21st century being, you know, incredibly brilliant at satire. I, I still think that some of the hilarity of that, and I think some of the shock value of that, still rests on them being a woman. And so, you know, gender, I think, is still at work, but I, I don't think women are, you know, prevented from being absolutely fantastic satir and applauded satirists today. Um, but I think I think gender's always at, at play. Yeah. So where does satire fit into your research, Karen? Yeah, satire's come in, in in a few different areas. So my early work was on um, sex. And um, there's quite a lot of satire that that, that uses sex. Um, so I did a lot of work on erotic writing uh, and some some visual erotic images as well. And a lot of the the material that I classed as erotic was also satirical. It was satire. It was using sex to um, to expose you know, some some facets of contemporary 18th century society that the authors were, were unhappy with um, or, or thought were ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, a, lo- a lot of the stuff that I looked at was in particular satirising, you know, highly respectable activities of those who were involved in, in the Enlightenment, really, you know, exploring the natural world and the scientific world, often, you know, supported by the great and the good, including politicians uh, and, and very sort of high-profile aristocrats, all of whom feature in, in these erotic works obliquely um, or, or less obliquely sometimes. So lots of the texts, for example, would take, um, would look like botanical uh, works or works of natural history, but actually they'd be pretty rude, um, sometimes rather filthy descriptions of, of male and female reproductive organs or, you know, the sex act. So are lots of things going on there. You know, these authors are ridiculing botany and science. You know, they're dedicating books to people like Joseph Banks, um, the 18th century explorer and, and naturalist. They're also doing something else. I mean, I think one of the components of erotica that I was really interested in was its was its cleverness or its purported cleverness. Uh, so these erotic texts, which are poking fun at, you know, all these Enlightenment projects, of course, they're also pandering to the reader's knowledge of of that and and those developments. Um, So they're sort of colluding with the readers. But then, of course, they're also doing this. The whole thing is designed to get a laugh and also write and read about about sex in ways that would be very difficult in more explicit genres um, because of censorship. So there's a lot of different kinds of pleasure in these sorts of satires for, for a group that I, I believe were, you know, almost exclusively male, but, you know, both in terms of the, the, the writers and the readers. More recently, satires come up in, a, in an, another area of my work, and, and that's a project that I've done on Mary Toft, who's the woman who gave birth to 17 rabbits in 1726. Hang on, wait, so she literally gave birth to 17 rabbits? Well, you know, in a funny kind of in a funny kind of way, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, of course, it was a hoax. The, the spoiler is that no <laughs> women women can't gestate rabbits. Oh, no. um, yeah, sorry, sorry to spoil that for you, but you know, she did actually um, have rabbits, 
uh, killed, skinned, chopped up and inserted inside her body, which she then passed over a period of several weeks. So it's a rather unpleasant story, actually, yeah. in which there's something real, there's something real going on. Mm. But that that wasn't the focus of, of contemporary writers. You know, they were interested in, you know, pumping this for all the hilarity they could squeeze out of it. And of course, you know, there's a lot, you know, it, it is, you know, who would, doesn't want to laugh at a woman who's pretending to give birth to rabbits? It's it's ridiculous. It, in a lot of the humorous writing about it and the satirical writing about it, though, of course, there's a there's much more sort of deep-seated ambivalence going on. So the king, um, George I, was closely involved in the case. He had Mary Toft, who was actually from Surrey, moved to London so that his representatives could... Um, examine her more closely and more easily. There were more general comments um, using the case on politics. You know, we're now in a society where women are giving birth to rabbits. Britain is going to the dogs, essentially, Mm -hmm. and it's the fault of our politicians. Some really famous writers, Alexander Pope wrote what's probably the most well-known satire about the case. It's a poem called The Discovery, and, and his interest there actually isn't so much in the politicians and the king, but it's much more directly a satire on the men, mostly scientists, but also doctors who are involved in the case and who believe it, who are credulous. Um, and he uses all manner of devices to, to really poke fun at them and, and their ridiculous and, and he says prurient interest in examining, you know, Mary Toff's body. So it's a satire on the people who believed it rather than on Mary Toft herself. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, that's quite interesting. I mean, in some ways, he's typical. So it's a, it's a very rich theme in, in the printed literature around, and the visual um, satires, actually, around the Toft case, that it's the men who are um, the victims of the, of the satire. So Pope, for example, uses a number of of metaphors, which is phallic metaphors, really, to say that, you know, the interest of these apparently respectable surgeons and and scientists and and elite men, um, who he names, taking out a few of the the vowels, but, you know, he names, um, is saying that their interest really is is of a sexual nature. Um, They're getting off on um, examining the case, um, using their telescopes, for example, um, is, is one metaphors that he uses but it but but mary toft certainly comes in for attack and and that, that scene of of the the printed work around the case you know is is sort of wholly misogynistic um as you would expect because she seemed to pull the wool over the eyes of these elite men and she's very poor she's a woman um and so this is a real offense to all kinds of elements of the 18th century order so we were just talking, Karen, about Viv Groskop's comments about how women who do satire are often subject to more censure than men. But then that can also mean that when they do it, the satire has more power because of that censure. Are there examples of anything like that in the 18th century? Yes. It would be very easy to take the sort of dominant sort of discourse in the 18th century as truth. You know, this idea that that, that satire is masculine, that satire is, is phallic, and it's often described in that way, you know, it's men wielding these sort of sharp phallic weapons, you know, often it's the pen, of course. Um, but but women, you know, some women um, absolutely use, use satire. I would say that that's most pronounced 
when they're talking about the domestic um, environment. So some of my work has been about the home and women often write very powerfully using satire in, in some cases um, about the hard work that they put into the domestic. There's one very famous poem by a woman called Mary Collier, which is written um, just around the middle of the, the 18th century, which is a direct response to a poem called The Thresher's Labour by Stephen Duck. And Mary Collier in her poem is, starts off by, you know, addressing Stephen Duck as immortal bard and then goes on to just sort of destroy his case that the thresher's work is never done. And actually what she goes, goes on to say in her poem The Woman's Labour is, that's just not true. If you look at my situation, I'm the one who works all day. And then when the threshers come home and is resting, I continue to work in the home. So the home she redefines as this as this place of, of really difficult and, and testing manual labour. And that's, that's never done. I think women use elements of satire when they're talking about the, the situation of women more broadly. So, you know, there is feminist literature in the 18th century. You know, it's it's developed out of a tradition from the late 17th century, the work of Mary Astle and, and the great satirist Afro Bairn, of course. And through the 18th century, you see women using elements of satire in what I think are generally more serious texts to sort of, you know, criticise womanhood often and femininity um, and to criticise men. Do you think women are more aggressively silenced and shut down when they do satire than anything else? Or are they? is it just that they're silenced and shut down all the time anyway? That's a really difficult question. I think in the, in the 18th century, there are really powerful prescriptions about what women should say, certainly from the middling sort upwards. You know, modesty is, is a really important feminine virtue. They're supposed to engage in polite and easy conversation as women. In fact, for many people in the 18th century, women are absolutely critical if polite conversation is is going to work because women smooth out all the rough edges of men. So there are some really deep-seated ideas about the natural differences between men and women and, and the value of those to society. Women are delicate. They don't give offence. And that partners very well with, with men's sort of slightly rougher, more vicious nature. Um, so there were really there were some really important uh, general gendered expectations about about women um, and men, which mean that there are bound to be there's bound to be I think an uneasy relationship between satire. Yeah. And okay, that's really interesting because it suggests that it's not so much that women just get shut down for talking or for doing satire even. It's that it's part of a bigger set of assumptions about what a woman's role in the conversation should be, that it's to make it nice and make it flow and make it easy rather than make it difficult and spiky and challenging. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. So women aren't being silenced generally. I think satire is not seen as a an appropriate mode of communication for an appropriately gendered woman. So so it's partly about the sort of subject and the topic and I think it's partly about the genre and the style. Well, that's really interesting. I think that clarifies things in a lot of different ways, doesn't it? Yeah, so it's not just as straightforward as women can't do satire or women aren't allowed to do satire. It's this combination of 
what women are supposed to be doing in a conversation, the sorts of things they're supposed to be talking about, the sort of functions they're supposed to be fulfilling. Those are those factors which are myriad. When a woman does mobilise satire, or historically have mobilised satire, it makes that satire particularly more potent. Yeah, potentially, anyway. Thank you, Karen. Yeah, thanks, Karen. That was fantastic. But unfortunately, it looks like we're coming to time. So we better say goodbye, Karen. Bye. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Karen today, Joe. I thought that was fantastic. Yes, yeah, that was great. What a good podcast that was. What but then good. they've all been good, haven't they? They have. And I hear a little bit of hint of regret and nostalgia in your voice there, Joe. <laughs> yes, yeah, because this is, this is, of course, it's the last one in the series, it's isn't it? It's the last it? episode yeah. of Smith & War Talk About Satire. Series one! <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we are going to do another series, aren't we? We are going to do another series. Not. Yeah, 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 we're going to do a second series, even if we have to go rogue and yeah. record it on our phones. Do you think there's any way that listeners could help us with that? They definitely could. If they could demonstrate that they were... Aware. Aware of the podcast, or, you know, ideally if they were enjoying it and finding it useful and it was affecting some kind of benefit on their life or the way they thought about the issues we've been discussing, but, but also just if they're aware of it... Yeah. They could, um, well, what do you think they could do? <laughs> they could, <laughs> is there any way they could hit us up, do you think? I guess. What the, One thing they could do would be to hit us up in our socials. They could hit it? us up in our they socials, could, yeah. yeah. Just so to if, let us know they're aware. If they wanted yeah. to do that, how might they do that, Joe? Well, they could find us um, on Twitter, at mm-hmm. Satire No More, mm-hmm. because I think that's our Twitter. Name. It is, it is, yeah. yeah. What else? That's the main way to do yeah. it. Or, um, or if they just visit, visit our website, which yeah. is called Satire, Deaths, Birth, Legacies. And sometimes we... Birth, Deaths and Legacies. Yeah, you find it by Googling any of those words in any particular order on any search engine. You'll yeah. find your way to our yeah. website, where all of our previous episodes are. That's where we'll be putting Series 2. Yeah. And also more information about our project, and also information about how to email the project. So if you want to get in touch that way, you can... There's just a lot of ways to hit us up, isn't there? There is, just, but just please do give hit us, us a yell. Yeah. yeah, let us know. And as it is the end of the season, we'd like to say thank you to all our guests so far. So thank you very much to Katie Snow. To Gronny Rohair. To Wendy McLashen. Helen Williams. To Kate Davison. And to Karen Harvey. And to the Tell team at York St John, without whom we wouldn't have this booth to record no. the podcast we haven't had the software to do the podcast with and we wouldn't have the expertise to be able to access any of that software and thank you in particular to Susie and Joe. yes thank you everybody and on that bombshell we'll see you in September when we return do also follow us carefully on Twitter because we've got a couple of little easter eggs to release between yeah. now and then haven't we yeah so, so keep an eye out keep an eye satire keep an will eye not out. die no but, not, but not on our watch not on our watch but we will return with a very big episode and a very big guest at the end of September. Yes, we will. But in the meantime... Sit up. Shut up. And eat my satire, kids. (laughs) Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye.